Hello and welcome back to the Small Animal Clinical Podcast brought to you from the Royal Veterinary College in London. My name is Shailen Jasani. As always, before we get into today's podcast, I just wanted to take a moment to thank the people that have rated or reviewed the podcast in iTunes. So the people I wanted to mention by name were Jimmy Badders from the UK, who says, perfect for those long, boring nights on call. And Ecos RVN, also from the UK, who says, excellent, great resource, worth a listen. And then we have Argento9 from the USA, who says, I'm an RVT in San Diego, California. I found this podcast very helpful and informational, straight to the point, great topics. So thanks very much, guys, for those comments. And if anyone else can spare a little time to do the same, that would be great. Okay, so let's get on with our podcast today. Um, I, think I, I think I always say this, but it's another episode that I am very much looking forward to recording. Uh, and that's really for two main reasons. The first is that this episode is on diagnostic imaging, which is not an area that we have covered in a dedicated podcast so far. And the second is because my guest today is a, a very old friend. Now, by that I don't mean that he's very old, because we are the same age, and if I'm calling him old, I'm calling myself old, and we're both basically in the prime of our lives. But he is a very good long-term friend, and so I'm very pleased to welcome Andrew Parry. Andy is a European and RCVS specialist in diagnostic imaging, and he has recently come back to work at the RVC as a faculty member in the QMH. So thanks very much for joining me on the podcast today, mate. Thanks very much for inviting me. Um, so Andy, I'd ask you to come prepared for today's podcast with your top 10 tips for how people can get the most out of uh, plain radiography and radiology in small animal practice. So the first question is, did, did you come prepared? I certainly did, yeah. All right, awesome. I've thought long and hard about this. <laughs> um, we're probably going to banter quite a lot today, but that's cool. Um, so before we, let's, we'll go through those, and then what I wanted to do was just to ask you a little bit about CT and MRI. And um, I always say on these podcasts that I always end up learning some stuff myself as well, which is cool. I should also say that um, because of time constraints, really, we're not going to be discussing ultrasonography, because I think we could probably do a podcast on ultrasonography separately. Um, but let's get started with your first tip. Okay, so my first tip is, is quite a general tip, actually, and, and probably um, relates to all imaging modalities, but is, is um, very specifically useful to kind of think about um, prior to performing any, any imaging study. And my first tip is, the more specific quest, the questions that you want to answer, the more likely the imaging modality, in, the, in this case, survey films, will answer it. And imaging used as a screening tool is rarely very useful. So we need to make sure that the appropriate imaging technique has been, has been performed. Um, and I guess what I mean by that is um, if we have a patient, for example, that needs um, uh, some sort of um, contrast study, we need to ensure that the appropriate contrast study is, is done for the, the presenting clinical signs. There's no point in doing an IVU, for example, an intravenous urogram, if we were concerned about um, a dog that had a urethral problem. So have a specific question before you do the imaging. Absolutely, or at least as far as you possibly can. Um, 
certainly with survey films, um, if the question that you're answering, the question that you want the modality to answer for you is, is vague, then the answer it's going to give you is going to be very vague. So um, um, one of the things that is um, <clears throat> going to happen a lot today is we're going to have a little bit of back and forth. Um, because I know that one of the things that the ECC service, uh, at least, I guess, predominantly the emergency side of the ECC service and the diagnostic imaging service have been bantering about for as long as I can remember, has been this, and it's going to come up, I think, in some of your other points as well, has been this exactly that point, really, where it can seem that, and it's not just us, to be honest, I think it applies to other clinicians too, where it can seem like people are on a fishing expedition screening non-specifically just in case something is there and and you guys rightly so sort of say well what is the question you're trying to answer here and should you really just be doing screening imaging and sometimes in our minds <laughs> there is very good reason for why we're doing what we're doing and although we can see that we are screening in a bit of a fishing sense we feel that that's justified for that individual case and I know that we've had we haven't you and I haven't talked about these things because Thankfully, we don't spend our social time together discussing these things. Thank goodness uh, for that. <laughs> but, but so it's, it's an interesting challenge, isn't it? Because, <clears throat> you know, I know that it happens a lot, right? It doesn't, we're, it's, it's interesting, actually, because a point like this is not one of those situations where it doesn't happen in the QMH, because it happens in the QMH as well as happening in all other kinds of places. Um, so I think it's really interesting that, that was your number one point, really, which is because we, we, we heard this, we hear this a lot. I thought that would get your juices flowing, Shailen. <laughs> so I, I guess there's probably, I probably ought to, to add something to this, and that is um, if, you're, if you're using the technique as a screening exercise, it's very difficult to interpret the results that you're going to get from it. Um, and this is probably more pertinent when we use advanced imaging techniques uh, for the same thing as, as a screening exercise, because... Even more then, we're going to pick up uh, abnormalities um, that aren't necessarily clinically significant. And I think that's, this is true for all imaging um, and is, is also very pertinent in, in survey radiography. How do we interpret the, the findings of, those, um, of that imaging study uh, is very, very much dependent on how that patient has presented and uh, it's interesting also because, as you know, I spent a fair amount of my time <laughs> listening and hearing, reading about um, human medicine out of interest. And, um, you know, they do talk a lot about the incidentaloma, and they do often say, you know, um, I guess one of the, the things that comes to my mind, although we're not talking about CT here specifically, is this kind of, you know, you've had trauma, let's just whole body CT scan you. And a while back, and still to, to in some places, that was what people thought they were supposed to be doing to traumatize people was basically doing just survey whole body imaging in case they found something. And then there've been a whole lot of work trying to find criteria that would make you have enough of a concern to look in specific places for specific problems rather than just saying, just survey the whole of this body just in case there's a problem there. Um, I, I think it's a conversation that, you know, we could talk a lot about. <laughs> this just this individual point, and I think it's. Um, I, I can see. I can see the whole argument from both sides of the fence. Really, I guess because one could turn it around and say, well, so I've done a screening test and I found abnormalities, and surely then, what is the issue with then interpreting whether you think those abnormalities, and I'm doing air quotes, um, are significant or not? So, so what's the harm in finding them if I then don't overinterpret them? I guess that's the <laughs> issue. The, the issue in this case is not the uh, is. 
is not how the images are read, but more the interpretation of those images. Um, and the classic example, I guess, is uh, a dog that presents with a mass of unknown origin. Mm. And not unreasonably, we may be looking for an a neoplastic process, and not unreasonably, therefore, we might, we might want to do some thoracic radiographs. Now, if we see one thoracic nodule in an older dog with a mass of an unknown etiology, are we definitely going to say that this dog has evidence of metastatic neoplasia? Well, I would suggest with... Um, with the improvements that we've made, with even with survey radiography, with, um, with computed radiography and digital radiography, we need to be a little bit cautious about this because we're now seeing things that perhaps 10 years ago we had, we had no way of detecting. So I guess from the, the pragmatist in me would suggest <laughs> that um, getting more of a definitive diagnosis and then chasing the repercussions of that diagnosis seems to me to be a much more sensible approach um, when it comes to imaging. Yeah, it's interesting because also um, this whole business about, you know, what is normal. <laughs> and um, we're, we're both, I'm sure, aware of cases where things that were basically incidental have been chased sometimes in some quite dramatic ways. And um, that's always not in the patient's interest as well. So I think that's definitely an issue. And that whole argument about um, what is normal and what's, you know, I'm trying to think of the right word, what's appropriate within normal limits, whatever a, you want to call a it. A variation. And I think, yeah, that's a good imaging word. <laughs> I, th I think this is, this is really pertinent. And you've already referred to my uh, extraordinary age. It's probably best that we leave that there. But certainly something that uh, I have come to realize as I've gained more experience as a radiologist is not necessarily those patterns of disease, but the extraordinary range of, of normal that we, that we encounter with our domestic so patients. To, to lead on from that point, and again, one of the things we do on this podcast is to not be polemic or critical, but to also be quite honest, right? So I would say, if I said to you, I think a number of cases, there are a number of cases where people have chased what was basically a normal variation as an abnormal finding and done investigations and workup and so on. Do you think that's a fair statement? Do you think that's happened? I think, I think we, we are definitely seeing an increased incidence of that happening, uh, I guess, in referral practice. Um, and certainly it's, it's, um, it's, not, it's not my interest to be critical of, of uh, primary care. I was, a, I was a primary care veterinary surgeon for a very long time before I became a, a radiologist. Uh, and I'm fully aware of the, of the pressures on um, of primary care uh, veterinary surgeons. Um, but I think increasingly, and probably imaging, the in improvements in imaging probably have a role to play with mm. this because we're starting to see things that we never used to be able to see. Mm. I think increasingly in a referral practice, we see um, certainly not a majority, but an increasing minority of cases that have been investigated because a normal finding has been interpreted as abnormal. So, yeah, I think that's a very fair statement. <clears throat> and um, we won't go into it here, but I, I guess with the, uh, we're going to talk about advanced imaging techniques later in the podcast, and I guess as they become more available, if people aren't as experienced with those, then they may again interpret what you would think would be a normal variation. 
as being an abnormality. But don't answer that because we'll come back to that okay, sure. at the well, end because well, otherwise we're never going to get through. That's, that's probably point, very pertinent point. when we discuss advanced imaging. Yeah, definitely. exactly. So let's move on from point one to point number two. Okay, so I'm now going to go from the sublime to the ridiculous. <laughs> um, and one of the things that I think is very, very important um, uh, when we're describing um, images is... I'm, I guess I'm a lazy radiologist, and so I want the diagnosis to be obvious to me when I'm interpreting radiographs. And one of the ways that I can make the diagnosis as obvious as possible is pay, paying attention to very good radiographic technique. And this is something that I think is, is very often forgotten because we consider it so basic. Mm. But very simply, if we pay attention to a, a, the way a patient is positioned for an imaging study, it can have a huge effect on, on our interpretation of that study or our ease of interpretation of that study. And um, this, the purpose of this podcast is not for you and I to have a back and forth between... <laughs> Although that seems to be working quite well so far. <laughs> between emergency and imaging. But I, I think that's another point that's come up in the past, right, where we... Because to, do, to be able to get a patient adequately restrained to position them properly requires your patient to be adequately restrained. Now, the flip side or the, the justification of what you're saying is that if you don't get adequately positioned films and you don't take the right films, then almost what was the point of doing the imaging study in the first place, right? Is that fair? I think that's fair for, and I know where you're going with this, <laughs> I, think, I think that's very fair for elective procedures, which after all is the vast majority of the imaging studies that we see. They're, yeah, exactly. they're done because we've chosen to do them. Yeah, and I'm introducing huge emergency bias here, so I should probably stop. Doing of course. It. But, um, but no, absolutely. So I think, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that, and then you know this anyway, is that um, there have been times when we have had emergency patients where we have, in a sort of risk benefit assessment, decided that the potential risks we face of doing a better imaging study for the patient were greater than the reward of getting that better study. But there is a grey zone there where you could almost say, well, why did you do the study? And I guess we would argue and say, well, we felt we got whatever information we needed at that particular point in time. And again, when I'm teaching people about, you know, imaging emergency patients, one of the things I'm trying to get them to understand is that sometimes you have to accept a study that is adequate, but really not very good, and then come back and do a better one when the patient's in a better condition to have it done. But as you say, you know, that's um, with my emergency bias and for the vast majority of cases. Is it my imagination or do people get taught quite well about how to position patients. Do you think they get taught and forget, or do you think that... I seem to well, hang on, I think that, and things where people are like, you know... <laughs> let me just address your first point first, yep. um, uh, which kind of goes back to my first top tip, if you like. Yep. <laughs> Even in emergency cases, uh, when we're unable to sedate our patients, um, and quite rightly, we have to accept that there are going to be limitations in our radiographic technique. Typically, then, in those cases, if you take a dyspneic cat, for example, or a dyspneic dog, or um, a dog with a heme abdomen or suspected heme abdomen, from an emergency perspective, we're, we're trying to answer a very specific question. Mm -hmm. Does this cat have a pneumothorax? Does this cat have a pleural effusion? Or does this cat have parenchymal um, airway disease, uh, which even in a poorly positioned radiograph because the cat is conscious and, and we can't sedate, 
maybe relatively easy question to answer from a single uh, radiograph. So it goes back to this point of if the question that you want to ask is very specific, yeah. then the radiograph will very often give you a very accurate answer, even if it's not very well positioned. But certainly, I mean, notwithstanding the emergency cases... Before you are, carry on, though, I have to just chirp in there and say that um, we're not talking about ultrasound today, but one of the things that you know we are doing more as emergency people. And again, a lot of this stuff we just do because they started doing it in people and it seemed like a good idea. And, and you know, so, so some of those questions, we're not going to have a talk on Disney and cats but, uh, or Disney patients, but some of those questions that um, because of the issues with getting radiographs in Disney patients, for example, uh, being able to use ultrasound on them as an emergency person and answer the do you have an effusion, do you have parenchymal disease question is becoming something that's, you know, it is something that's very attractive and it's becoming something that is increasingly done, um, but let's just leave it at that, and I'll let you carry on with your sure. comments about positioning. Uh, which I can't actually remember <laughs> I what think, the well, second I was part of your question you was. Felt that people are, are taught well. Oh, about, that's right. About positioning, and I think probably there's um, thing, things are moving on. Clearly, things are moving on in imaging, and um, most veterinary students are, are taught. Um, at, a level of radiography and radiology. They're probably aware of other imaging modalities, but in, in most cases, certainly in the UK, uh, there isn't a huge amount of time associated with, with learning different imaging modality techniques. So given that they're only taught radiography and radiology, the vast majority of students want to learn about radiology. They want to learn about how to interpret the radiographs, mm. um, almost because... Uh, I would guess that the radiography, as in uh, the positioning, the exposure, etc., is has either already been drummed into them to a great extent or is something that perhaps they feel they can pick up on the job better. Um, so I would guess that um, uh, whilst students probably have a reasonable idea of the, of the, the theory of the, of the techniques of positioning, etc., uh, probably don't have an awful lot of practical experience of, of actually acquiring radiographs that are optimally positioned, etc. Yeah. I think it's like you say, though, you know, it's, I guess it's one of those things that um, you kind of need to do and then... Because, I mean, I, if you ask me when the last time I positioned a patient for a radiograph was, who knows, you know, like, because it, the way my life has taken me, it's meant that for a while there were other people who did that. I don't mean radiographers necessarily, but you know, residents, interns, whatever it might be. Um, but I, I, I feel like I did enough of it in the early part of my career that if you told me to go and position an animal now, I would do it reasonably well. And I'm not talking about brilliant orthopedic radiographs, although we had a period when I was an intern when we, um, when we were the radiographers in the QMH and we had to do that for two or three weeks or something, and that was a nightmare. Um, you know, taking all these perfectly positioned orthopedic x-rays. Anyway, let's, um, so let's move on to your third point Okay, so um, again, my third point is on a, on, a, um, on a similar topic, and it occurred to me actually when I was writing these top ten tips, the vast majority of them are actually more based on radiography than radiology, mm -hmm. but um, hopefully that will unfold over the next, um, the next few minutes. My third top tip is uh, using an exposure guide can be really useful. So I guess the first question that Shane is going to ask is, what on earth are you talking about? Because um, <laughs> uh, the tone of what exposure guide is. <laughs> what I'm, it's what, probably true. What I mean by it is, um, 
when we go into practice and we're taking radiographs, it's, it's, um, it's very easy to preach that we should use various techniques for various different parts of the body. But actually, often when we move, move into a practice, um, there may be, well, there should be, by law, there should be exposure books with previous exposures written. And hopefully, that actually, that's mandated. Isn't that's it? mandatory. Yeah, yeah. We need. You is need, that by your your is who, who's supposed to make sure you do that? Is that your so, RPA? So yes. well, the, <laughs> in the practice, there should be an RPS, which is a radiation protection supervisor, uh, and it's his job to ensure that his or her job to ensure that local rules are are, are available and right. visible to all members of staff that are using um, ionising radiation. The ionising radiation rules in this country are pretty old now. In fact, they still date back to 1999. Um, but that's possibly because... That was the year that we graduated. That's right, yeah. Oh, and now you told everybody how old we are. <laughs> um, but I guess that might be because not a great deal has changed in, in radiation protection. We all know that radiation is dangerous, and we all know that we should be using as minimal exposure as, as is possible. And part of that is by using um, uh, a, a recorded exposure logbook. So hopefully we can get an idea of, of what is a good exposure for a particular size animal and particular uh, body part. So one way that we can use um, uh, an exposure guide is to look at previous exposures and see whether they came out well or not. Um, another way of doing it, and I quite like this method actually, is, uh, is to measure our patients. So if we're going to take a thoracic radiograph, uh, we position our patient and then we measure the maximum thickness of that patient. Um, if it's over 10 centimetres, we should be using a, a grid anyway. Um, but then by building up a log of um, the, ex the good exposures that we used according to the, the thickness of patient that we've exposed is a really, really good and accurate technique of ensuring that your, um, your exposures are, are right first time without you having to repeat it all the time. So um, <clears throat> a couple of things, sort of just practical things, really. Um, this exposure guide, what's the form of it? Like, is it, what is it, is it a book? Is it a... Yeah, so most, most people will have a book that they can fill out at the time of taking the radiographs. Um, and it should have pertinent data, the date, um, it should have the, uh, the, the patient name. Um, some people include what type of patient it is. Um, and then we should have the exposures written down in, in terms of the, the kilovoltage and the milliamps seconds, so the MAS milliamps time, um, which is a product of the, of the current and the time multiplied together. Some machines will, ex will display uh, MA separately to S. By S, I mean the time number of seconds. And some machines will, will display that as a, as a multiplied figure. Um, and then there should be an idea of the, of the clinician that, that took the radiographs. Um, and then I would suggest it's a very good idea to, to although this is certainly not, some, not a statutory, uh, is to put an idea of whether that exposure was, was good or not. Um, and <clears throat> there's two things I want to ask you. The first is when you were saying that when you say statutory or it's mandated that you have to have one, are we talking here not RCVS but actually the law of the land? Or yeah, absolutely. So it's the same in people. hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so if if um, the health and safety executive came into the practice on a spot check and there wasn't an exposure chart, 
um, that would be that would be um, certainly quite a, quite a serious um, problem. And then my next question was: if you took the exposure guides from fifty practices, do you think there'd be a lot of variation in terms of what exposures had been recorded for what depth of patients, for example? Like, is it? Does the machine that's being used have a lot of impact on that kind of thing? Or? It's, a, it's a really good question, actually. Um, and <laughs> well, you're bound to have one. Um, <laughs> have one every podcast. Th- and this has this has kind of been looked at um, in uh, in in some abstract presentations in in uh, conferences recently, actually. And certainly. Um, the 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 exposure required for modern digital systems by digital systems i mean either computed radiography or direct digital radiography uh, the exposure required is certainly less than is required for the old fashioned i say old fashioned but certainly what you and i grew up with classic film screen combinations but actually the exposure to each patient on average, is increased. So that kind of doesn't really make a lot of sense. And I think one reason for that is that, not necessarily that we're doing more repeat exposures, because actually I think we're probably not doing more repeat exposures, but actually the, um, the new systems, the modern digital systems, are so good at compensating for the wrong exposure that it's very difficult to tell whether you've made the correct exposure or not. Mm. And therefore, it's very easy to overexpose your patient without realising it because the image that you get at the end of the day, it will be very difficult to tell. Interesting. Because um, I, I guess what I was you know, wondering was, in essence, if you could just have standardised exposures and why do you need to have an exposure guide? But you're basically saying... I mean, so I guess that <clears throat> this goes back to right at the beginning of the, the point, really, in the sense that... You can't just buy a book that tells you what exposures or what no, going to work for. And there, there are a number of reasons for that. Um, the efficiency of the tube head will change not only from system to system, uh, but also uh, according to how old it is. Um, it will also change in the amount of power that it's that it's capable of producing. Uh, the type of um, uh, films that we're using is very variable for film screen combinations. The screens that we're using are very variable. Um, and the technique of each individual radiographer can be variable as well. And certainly for CR systems, there's also a certain amount of variability in how good the, um, the X-ray detection system is at detecting radiographs and uh, detecting X-rays, and that, that's very variable. So, <coughs> so certainly an exposure... Is, is peculiar. I mean, obviously, clearly there are trends. Um, we're not going to find in one practice that they're using 10 kV and in another practice for a same size patient they're using 100 kV. Mm. Um, but uh, fine-tuning the exposure, I think, is, is peculiar to the, the imaging system that you're so using. So if you get a new machine um, or if you, start, if you start up a new practice, you basically have some sort of guidance in terms of what to start with, but then you should fine-tune that and develop your own guide. Absolutely, and, and um, most imaging manuals, readily available imaging manuals, uh, being careful not to name any, uh, <laughs> will have um, will have a range of exposures that you might want to use for a thoracic 
radiograph, for <clears> example, <throat> and a range of exposures that you might want to use for an abdominal radiograph. Awesome. Right, let's move on to point number four. Point number four, uh, which actually quite nicely leads on from what we've just been discussing. Point number four is just because you're using a computed radiography system, you should still be careful about your radiographic technique. Before I let you carry on, you have to explain what a computed radiographic system is. Right, okay, so... Because <laughs> um, you know what, like, I'm not sure I fully understand. <laughs> so, clearly in the last ten years, um, radiology's moved on a lot. Um, and we've gone from a system of using um, a good old-fashioned film, uh, which we use a dark room to put into a cassette, and the cassette has two, uh, typically two screens within it, um, and then we make our exposure and then we take that screen out within a dark room and then develop it using chemicals, uh, typically in an automatic processor. Mm. Some of us remember the days when we still had manual processors, but that's really is giving away my age. Trying them somewhere in a dark room. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, the well, these, these days, those sorts of systems, while still available, they are becoming rarer and rarer. And, and I should say that for those people that are still using those systems, there's absolutely nothing wrong with them. Um, and for a long time, actually, film screen systems were still considered far superior in terms of their spatial resolution than, um, than more modern digital imaging systems, particularly for imaging um, the thorax. Um, I think probably these days that, that's no longer true. But the, the point that I'm trying to, to, to make is there's nothing wrong with the, the good old-fashioned film screen systems. These days we have uh, digital imaging systems, um, and there are really two types of digital imaging systems that, that we can think about without getting into the nitty-gritty of it. There's one type where we expose, um, expose an imaging um, uh, detector, uh, which is in a cassette, and then we pop that cassette into a machine. The machine removes the detector from inside, reads the image, and then displays the image in a digital format. And that's probably what most general practitioners would use. The other variety is, is um, the, the more direct di digital imaging, and that is where the imaging plate is attached to the uh, processor and uh, an exposure is made onto that imaging plate and almost instantaneously the image is, is displayed um, through, through a, a completely different type of image processing. And uh, there are a number of differences between these two systems. Uh, the first system we, we nominally call computed radiography, although right. typically they, they clearly both involve computing. And the second version we, we would, re, would refer to as a type of digital radiography. So I think that's why I was confused, see, because I was like, well... The nomenclature is confusing, and we, can also, we also have direct and indirect digital radiography. And I, I don't really want to get into the semantics of this, <clears> no, because no. it's, well, it's, it's probably not necessary. It's I think that's, um, confusing that's plenty people. of explanation, just so that, I guess, people understand. There, there are advantages and disadvantages of both systems. Uh, one of the main advantages of a DR system is that um, the imaging is very rapid. And so if you were an equine practitioner, for example, in a, in a field and you had to do uh, 40 radiographs for a prior-to-purchase examination, for example, 
then you could really see the advantage of a DR system, which gives you instantaneous results. You know whether you need to repeat the images. You don't have to go back to the practice to process those films. And I use film in a very loose sense. Um, uh, and so there are some distinct advantages. Uh, and there are some other advantages which um, we probably won't go into. But no, that's fine. So let's get back to your point before the, I interrupt. The, the point that I wanted to make was... These, all of these modern imaging systems, so all of digital imaging, and, and that's the umbrella that we use to describe all of these systems, uh, they have a dramatic improvement in latitude compared to uh, old films, film screen systems. So what does that mean? What it means is that the, the imaging system, so the, the data collecting system that is in these, um, these digital um, uh, imaging systems is much, much more sensitive to lower and higher uh, X-ray exposures. And so we can use a much larger range of X-ray exposures and still get what appears to be an apparently diagnostic study. And very clearly we need to be very careful about that because we can actually overexpose our patients and potentially overexpose ourselves, which is something that we should never be doing, um, and not actually realise it. In the old days when we had film screen combinations, if we overexposed our film, it was pretty obvious. You couldn't see anything. It came out extremely radiopaque, blackened. These days, even with relatively high exposures, <coughs> a CR and a DR system will give you a relatively diagnostic radiograph despite the fact you've actually used exposures that are too high. So this kind of takes me back to this whole exposure chart thing, because we want to be using as low an exposure as, it, as is reasonably practicable. When we use very, very low exposures with digital imaging systems, there, there aren't enough X-ray photons striking the imaging system, the detection system, for it to know what's actually signal from our, our patient, or, uh, or what's just random background noise in the electrical circuitry. Uh, and we call that quantum noise or quantum model. And that's, that's an indication that the exposure that we're using is a little bit too low. But unless you're using very, very high exposures, there won't be anything visual there on the X-ray, on the, on the image that you have created that tells you that it's a far too high exposure. I'm making a sweeping generalisation there. Some manufacturers incorporate systems to show you um, whether the uh, exposure has been adequate or, or overexposed. Uh, but, but from a point of view of just looking at the radiograph you've created, mm. you may have well overexposed your patient and not actually realised. So we need to be kind of playing around with our exposures, using lower exposures, and, and as things... Uh, as the pace of this gathers speed, and it really is gathering speed, it's a very exciting time to be a radiologist at the moment because uh, the technology is, is extraordinary. Um, but as this gathers speed, we are using detection systems that we can expose with lower and lower and lower um, numbers of X-ray photons. And so there's, there's a responsibility, I think, for practitioners to try to ensure that they're using lower and lower X-ray exposure techniques. Now, I don't want to get people too upset about this, 
because it is a little bit controversial. Um, and in actual fact, in small animal practice, um, certainly in the UK, uh, it would be very unusual for you to be uh, exposing yourself to very high levels of, of radiation from X-ray exposures. I don't want people to panic. Um, but on the other hand, we have a responsibility as trained veterinarians to use uh, as lower an exposure as is is necessary. So basically what we're saying is that use good radiographic technique and then try to titrate down your exposure to a level where you're still getting very good images, but that you can also feel comfortable that you're using the lowest exposure possible, and that is both from the point of view of minimizing exposure to radiation for the patient and staff. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Cool. All right. Got that point. Right. It's number five. Okay. Halfway already. <laughs> so, uh, number five. Again, we're going to talk a little bit more about exposure. Um, when imaging the thorax, we like to use a high KV, a high MA, and a low S technique. So, KV being the kilovoltage potential, the MA being the current, and the S being the time that we expose the radiograph for. And when we're imaging the abdomen, we like to use a low KV, a high MA, and a higher S technique than we would use in a, in a, a thoracic radiograph. Now, this is something which uh, all the textbooks tell us. <laughs> and I was going to say, it sounds very familiar. <laughs> and it, it's probably a little bit difficult to understand. At least, I, certainly, I still find it a little bit difficult to understand. Certainly, when I was a general practitioner, I found it <clears> difficult <throat> to understand. Um, so if we just break this down a little bit, KV is effectively the penetrating power of our X-ray beam. And a product of the current and the time is the number of X-ray photons that we're creating. This is not strictly true, but for the purposes of this discussion, let's, let's try and keep it as simple as possible. If we have... Um, a body region that has very high inherent contrast. So the thorax, for example, which has lung, has bone, and it has some soft tissue, all of which have very, very different radiopacities, then we can afford to sacrifice some of the contrast that we require from our X-ray beam by using a high KV technique. So that kind of sounds silly. Why are we making any sort of sacrifice at all? Well, the reason is, when we're exposing the thorax, typically the thorax is trying to move. After mm. all, our patients are trying to breathe. And I'm sure we've all seen those horrible, blurry radiographs that we take when a, when a patient's panting away. Well, if we take a high KV, it means that we can use a low MAS. And even better than that, with some X-ray machines, they'll allow you to separate your, uh, the MA that you've selected and the time that you've selected so that you can use a very high MA, and that means you can use a much, much shorter time. And so if we're using a very short time for exposure, fractions of a second, then typically we're going to get a less blurry image, despite the fact we've still exposed our radiograph with enough X-ray photons. Mm. So we can get away with that technique, that compromise, that using that high KV in order to reduce the time that, that we expose the radiograph for, because the thorax inherently has very good contrast already. But we 
don't need to get away with that when we look at the abdomen. When we look at the abdomen, which has a very low inherent contrast, there's a little bit of gas, but most of it is soft tissue, um, and fluid, which is also soft tissue in opacity when we're, when we're referring to survey films. Um, then we need an exposure which maximises the contrast uh, of the resultant uh, radiographic image that we're creating. And fortunately, we don't have to worry so much about timing because uh, the abdomen moves much, much less when the patient's breathing. And actually, typically, we try and obtain our radiograph in the expiratory pause. So when patients are, typically when patients are sedated, they take a nice deep breath in, which is very quick, and then they exhale, and then there's a, um, a length of time before they take another breath. Well, that's the time when we want to take our abdominal radiograph completely opposite to when we take our thoracic radiograph, which we want to try and take at the peak of inspiration. So if we're using a lower KV technique, the penetrating power of our X-ray beam is reduced. So what does that mean? Well, it means more of them are stopped by our patient, and that means we get more of a contrasty image that results from it. So when we're using an abdominal technique, we want to use a lower KV, so we're not producing such powerful x-ray photons and a higher MAS technique so we're producing more photons to expose our image excellent see I love it <laughs> I haven't had that explained to me in about 15 years yeah <laughs> certainly certainly you have to get your gray cells around it a little bit which is awesome um, I'm actually gonna say nothing about that because I don't have anything smart to say about that at all other than thanks for the education. Um, let's move on to uh, point six, which we've kind of touched on um, already, I think, but let's... Uh, <clears throat> what is your point six, please? Okay, so I owe this technique to um, a very great radiologist and um, ex-colleague and good friend of mine called uh, Paul Marnie. He's an Australian radiologist that works in the UK. Uh, and he showed me this technique when I was struggling as a, as a resident here at the RVC uh, some time ago. Um, and the thing that I was struggling with was the emergency critical care service here had asked me to take a radiograph of a cat that was very dyspneic. Had they? Yes, they Why? had. Why? <laughs> um, and it has the words. <laughs> and um, I'm sure we've all been in that situation where we're trying to take a, a diagnostic radiograph of a cat without exposing ourselves, <clears throat> but also trying to keep the cat um, still enough and and in an, a good enough anatomical position that we can, we can produce a diagnostic film. And this technique works brilliantly. I can't emphasize it enough. So what you do is you take your cat in their cat box. Um, and the cat box that I'm referring to are those kind of old-fashioned, wire-sided uh, cat boxes where you can completely open the lid, and the lid is typically secured by uh, a piece of wire that passes through a couple of, of hooks. Um, and what you do is you take the cat out of the box momentarily and you put your x-ray cassette in the box. And then you replace the cat and then you put the, um, you put the lid back on the box and you put, a, you put a blanket over the box or a towel over the box. Uh, you, can, um, you can put an, uh, an oxygen tube into the box if you want to, if the cat's that dyspneic. And then you position the, uh, the box on the, on the x-ray table uh, as if you're about to take a radiograph. So get everything collimated, collimate to the edges of the cassette if you want to, or even better, to the edges of the, of the, the presumed edges of the cat, and choose your X-ray exposure. And then what you do is you wait a few minutes. 
And typically what happens is cats, they're quite peculiar animals, but cats that are in respiratory distress tend to sit in an almost perfect dorsoventral position. They often have their, their thoracic limbs tucked underneath the thoracic cavity, which is not ideal, but they typically sit in an almost perfect dorsoventral position. And I certainly, I'd, I would urge you to try this because it's a great technique. Then what you do is you take, off the, um, you take off the blanket and you make your exposure. Now, the first time I did this, I had an exposure, a perfect exposure of this little cat um, with uh, a radiopaque lattice superimposed on him, and that's because I forgot to open the lid first. So <laughs> make sure you open the lid first. Uh, the cat probably won't move very much. If it does, just wait a few minutes until it calms down again and then obtain your exposure. This means you don't have to manually restrain the cat at all. Uh, and often, from the single dorsal ventral exposure, you may have the answer that you need um, before you then go ahead and take further exposures. Drain the cat's thorax, for example, notwithstanding the points that Shailen's made about ultrasound He's and got fast a making a second. Um, <laughs> uh, but this technique, I think, works, uh, works pretty well. Yeah, so um, <clears throat> I guess I should say that um, I, I, I teach this technique to people. Obviously, our, our stock line at the moment is very much about trying to not... I spent... So t teaching about Disney cats is kind of one of my favourite topics to teach about um, because you and I know and many people know of Disney cats that have died on X-ray tables, right? Because people have tried to aggressively restrain them at a time that was not appropriate. And we know why they do that, right? They do that because they have, no, they have not managed to reach a con conclusion yet as to what they think the problem is with that cat, right? Sure. And one of the things that we're trying to do, which fits very well with your description of this technique, is to get people to understand the concept of anatomically localizing where in the respiratory tract that cat's problem is. So is it upper respiratory tract? Is it pleural space? Is it parenchymal? Could it be a diaphragm rupture and so on? And therefore walk them through the thought processes to how to come to those conclusions and what they could potentially do about it. And therefore take away the sense of urgency that a lot of people still suffer from in terms of getting these Disney cats to an x-ray table. But I do always say to people that if you, um, if you really feel like you need that x-ray or if you feel like you're struggling to come to any kind of positive uh, decision about what you can do to help that cat and you want to take x-rays... and I don't know where I got them from, but I have some pictures of this technique. Are they, they might be paused, to be honest. I think they were taken at the QMH years ago, maybe. So they, they I may, suspect they probably were paused <clears> in that case. They may well be his. Um, I've never claimed they're mine, but I do use them when I give talks. Um, the other point I was going to make, which is a very simple one, was just um, to remind people, I suppose, that, again, what we tend to do with these patients is to put them in oxygen... In here, it would be in the ICU. In practice, it would be by whatever means. And this is a really silly but important point, is that when you go to get the cat out of the oxygen cage, go with that carrier with the film plate, sorry, already in it, right? Because so, sometimes people go get the cat, then they go to the x-ray room, and then they're like, oh, I haven't put the cassette in yet, and then they take the cat out, and then they put the cassette in and put the cat back on top, which sometimes can go badly because the cat cannot appreciate it. So it's just a really minor point, but just trying to remember that um, we always say, you know, try and get everything ready. And so Andy's already mentioned about the oxygen tubing. Make sure that your machine's working. Make sure you know what exposure settings you're going to use. All those kinds of things so that you can make the procedure as um, minimally stressful for the patient. But, yeah, no, there's no, 
there's no controversy in, in your description. I think it's. Uh, I'm I'm actually very very happy that it's ranked in your top ten tips. To be honest, because like it's uh, you're preaching to the converted. Well, you know me, Shailen. I like to, <laughs> like to keep it practical. You're just humouring me, aren't you? <laughs> That's for my benefit. Okay, awesome. Let's move on and do point seven. Okay, point seven is a similar um, is on a similar vein, but actually. Um, Having worked in referral practice for a number of years now, this is something that continually and perpetually comes up. And, and it probably shouldn't do, um, and I think it's, it probably occurs because general practitioners just don't, don't realise that they're allowing it to happen. So my point seven is this. When imaging the thorax under sedation or anaesthesia, obtain a dorsoventral view first before you obtain a lateral view. And as such... If you're going to obtain radiographs under general anaesthesia, inflate the thorax whilst you're taking the radiographs. And this is really um, slightly labouring a point, but but the point is that um, our animals, when we when we sedate them or anaesthetise them, are very very specifically prone to atelectasis. And atelectasis is just a fancy word for lung collapse. If we Anesthetise a patient, even the process of anesthetising it, when we, when we lie it in a lateral recumbency, will cause atelectasis. Now, if you think about that, if you're trying to make um, a radiographic diagnosis, and here we go again, it's all about being a lazy radiologist and making life easy for yourself. Let the diagnosis shout out at you. If you're trying to make a diagnosis of a lung parenchymal disease, which is presumably why you're taking the thoracic radiographs in the first place, Trying to make that diagnosis in collapsed lung is virtually impossible. So if we take our dorsal ventral view first, that means that we haven't allowed the, the patient to be in lateral recumbency for any period of time. And so getting a good dorsal ventral view first, checking that we've got a, um, a good radiograph and then rolling into lateral recumbency is extremely useful and then the second point is, um, is inflating the thorax under general anaesthesia. So we need to ensure that it's, it's, um, it's safe from a, from a radiation hazard perspective, that we've got um, uh, a lead screen that we can stand behind, perhaps an elongated uh, anaesthetic tube uh, to our patient. Um, and then we can, we can close the valve and squeeze the bag and, in, and manually inflate the thorax so that we can take a radiograph at our artificial peak inspiration. And the reason we're doing that is the same thing. We're trying to prevent this atelectasis. Atelectasis is not our friend when we're trying to interpret uh, the, the pulmonary parenchyma. So avoiding it at all costs is really important. And I think one thing that's really that, that, that probably is overlooked is these, these dogs and cats need to be in lateral recumbency for seconds and you've got atelectasis. Can I, um, <clears throat> how, how, like, how do we know that? I don't, I don't mean I don't believe it. I just mean how do we know it? Like, it sounds like a crazy question, but has anyone ever actually taken the same set of dogs, x-rayed them, put them in left lateral, right lateral, waited 30 seconds and x-rayed them again? Or like, I, is, it just, is it just based on a lot of experience and impression? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure whether that's ever been published. Um, it may well have been published hmm. back in the dim and distant past. But I think we, we as radiologists, we recognise it and 
are reminded of it, even in referral hospitals. I'm not suggesting for a second that I'm um, preaching from an ivory tower. I mean, this, this happens all the time. Mm. Um, and very clearly, um, we can see uh, very often that the patient's been laid on the, the right side, for example, to, for the induction of anesthesia, or that a right lateral radiograph has been performed before taking any other radiographs. Um, and this is even more pertinent when we come to discuss um, advanced imaging techniques, in, in particular CT. CT is so exquisitely detailed that uh, even a tiny bit of atelectasis is, is very easily visible. I should say, not, not in your defence, because you don't need um, defending because you're big enough and ugly enough to defend yourself, but um, that you know the point about you saying, oh, you're being a lazy radiologist, I think it's sort of... Um, you're being, uh, what's the word, intentionally polite. But, I mean, like, it's not good practice to take images that you then don't know whether you can interpret, right? Like, and we don't want pet carers to be paying those bills. We don't want decisions being made on radiographs that are equivocal in terms of whether they're interpretable or not, right? So, like, I think it's, um, you know, yeah, you want to maximise your chances of getting an answer, and it's not just from, you know, from your personal, professional point of view, but it also has consequences. I mean, you and I have seen legions of images that really were not interpretable on which lots of decisions were made, and it's like, well, that's just not good practice, and I'm happy to say that. <laughs> so, like, you know, it's, I think your point is, uh, is exceedingly valid. And um, obviously from a critical care point of view, you know, we're familiar with the whole how... The, positioning of the patient impacts on their oxygenation, for example, and therefore what impact positioning can have on, you know, um, on the lungs and their collapsed state and so on. So I think that's um, a very good point. I'm not going to let you answer, though, because we're going to carry on. <laughs> so sure. uh, what's point number eight? Point number eight. Um, again, all about positioning, all about the radiography. We will come to a little bit about radiology in a bit, but let's talk a more, bit more about radiography. Um, and this is actually um, more pertinent uh, in describing orthopedic radiographs. Um, and my point eight is this. When obtaining limb radiographs, if you are uncertain whether a finding on one limb is truly significant, don't forget, very often, you've got a normal limb lying right next to you. So radiograph the other limb. See if your finding is bilaterally symmetrical. I'm not suggesting that all bilaterally <laughs> symmetrical conditions are unimportant, but if your patient is, is lame on one specific limb and you're unsure how to interpret your radiographic findings, don't forget you've got another limb, and that can be really, really useful. Do you, do you think... Um so it's interesting because you said if you're not sure how to interpret those findings, so are you saying that you don't think that you should always be doing both limbs or what? I don't think that's necessary <laughs> in a lot of cases. Um, very clearly, if you radiograph the affected limb and it's very obvious what the pathology is, it's fractured, for example, uh, there's osteomyelitis, you have uh, sepsis, uh, you have a, a primary bone tumour, then clearly radiographing another limb is probably not of, of mm. any value. But if you are concerned about um, uh, perhaps a bony proliferation, um, a synostosis or exostosis, uh, and you're unsure whether this is just something that is peculiar to this dog or whether it's something that is causing a lameness, then certainly radiographing the contralateral limb can be really useful. 
Interesting. And um, I guess uh, on the issue of limbs, your point that you made earlier about patient positioning is one that um, is extremely valid, right? Because as I said earlier, when, when I was an intern, we didn't have radiographers, and so the interns took the images for, well, basically all day. And, um, yeah, I just have these nightmare memories of trying to get these beautifully positioned elbow radiographs or stifle radiographs or whatever it might be, and that was... Um, Probably not the best three weeks of my life. Like, I, like it was good learning for sure. Like, I really enjoyed the learning experience. But it was, um, it was. I guess when you get very familiar with it, fine. But at that time, it was. It's not something I'd done much before, and it's not something I've done much since, to be honest. But um, getting those, you know, well positioned images of joints and which which views of them to take and all that kind of sure, stuff. Sure, and I, I think this is kind of it. It, it goes back to. Um, me describing myself as a lazy radiologist, which is perhaps a little bit self-deprecating. I've never heard you say that about yourself before in like <laughs> 15 years or something. What, what I mean is... I mean, I've known it. Try, try and make life easy for yourself. If you're trying to make a diagnosis on a poorly positioned radiograph, you're, you're much more likely to make a mistake. You're much more likely to make a fool of yourself. And actually, it may have dire consequences to your patient. Mm. Um, so spending a little bit of time just getting the positioning right if the, if the patient is not sedated enough then if there's no reason not to do so ensure that they're, that they're adequately sedated um, then spending a little bit of time just, just getting that positioning absolutely right pays, in, in my experience pays dividends it really does excellent right let's move on to point number nine Number nine, last, well, penultimate but not least. Um, and again, same thing really. Uh, the more effort you put into your imaging study, the more likely you are to get a result. It's all about making life easy for yourself. So what do I mean by that? Um, we've, sort of, we've sort of talked about this already. Um, and there are a number of, there are a number of, 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 um, of aspects to it. The first, the first thing to say is... Um, Generally speaking, we have a fee-paying client base who are paying us to do a very specific job. Mm. And so if we're not performing our radiography as well as we could do, we're not giving a, a good, valuable service. I guess that's, that's the first thing to say. We wouldn't think about um, spaying a bitch, for example, and leaving an ovary in because of a poor technique. Um, so why would we really consider taking radiographs that aren't well positioned or, um, or using exposures that aren't appropriate or, or even um, radiographing an inappropriate um, part of the body? Um, so I guess that there's that aspect, but really to, to me the more important aspect is... Um, Generally speaking, with an imaging, um, an imaging study, the more you put into it, the more um, care that you take in preparing your radiograph, the easier it is to make a, a diagnosis based on it. You might want to do an intravenous urogram. I know we're not really going to talk about contrast studies, but you might, might want to do an intravenous urogram. It's much easier to interpret an intravenous urogram if we've performed an enema first to remove... Uh, fecal material because that's going that may well be misleading and it may well cause you to make the wrong diagnosis uh, it's much better to try and take a, a nice adequately collimated thoracic radiograph 
so that we're concentrating on the area that's most important, that we're optimising the radiograph that we're producing. Um, and again, we've talked a, a lot now about thoracic radiography, um, but it, it really... Um, it's important for any part of um, radiographic um, imaging that, that, that we talk about, be it radiographing a foot or radiographing a skull or, or anything else for that matter. What you put in makes your life easier at the other end. What do you think about... Um, this has nothing to do with point 10, but... <laughs> what, just you mentioned radiographing the skull, and it got me thinking, because um, do, do you think that... Uh, this is tangential, but nonetheless... Do you think there's much value in plain radiography of the skull or not? Yeah, I think it's really useful. For what? Um, there are going to be a number of times... Uh, well, there's two things to say. What do we have available to us as general practitioners? A lot of general practitioners don't have access to CT uh, or MRI. Um, and so in some cases, skull radiography can be used to rule out rather than necessarily diagnose um, some conditions, fractures, osteomyelitis, uh, certain types of skull neoplasia, for example. Um, so from that perspective, I think it can, be, it can be quite useful. So I guess there's two things. Number, else, number one, what else do we do? Um, it's not like every general practice has an MRI scanner or a CT mm. scanner sitting around mm. the corner, which may or may not be useful depending on how the case is presented. Uh, and number two, sometimes skull radiographs might give us, um, give us a diagnosis or, if not, rule out some types of diagnosis. Do you think it's fair to say that um, it's really quite difficult to get good Skull images. I think skull radiography is probably the most difficult type of radiography that we see in our veterinary patients because it's absolutely critical that the, that the skull is positioned symmetrically. And this is really difficult. It's a really complicated structure to start with. Uh, and we're looking at a three-dimensional object in two dimensions. So it's, it's really important that we position it carefully. I have a few caveats about this because it is kind of it is a it's quite an involved subject. Um, nasal radiography is very difficult to perform well and very often um, very inaccurate in what it shows us, even in very very well performed radiographs, and that's something that's been studied at ad nauseum. Um, in fact, some studies have suggested that when it comes to uh, rhinitis compared to neoplasia, nasal radiographs are like tossing a coin, as in they're so inaccurate it doesn't really make any difference whether you take the radiographs or not. Right. My perspective is um, very often in general practice we don't have a choice because we don't have a CT scanner, uh, and very occasionally, I wouldn't say often, but in a minority of cases, the answer will be there on the radiographs. And the other thing that we, that we can say about radiography is if you don't feel comfortable with interpreting them yourself, don't forget by taking those radiographs, you can always send them for a second opinion. It's not and like... We'll come on to that, I think, a bit later. But um, <clears throat> I guess the, I was thinking when you were saying this earlier as well, I guess it's um, incumbent on the practitioner or wh whomever is in responsible for taking the images in the practice to, even if you don't feel that you will have the expertise to interpret those films, to get films that are of a quality rate that 
someone can then interpret for you. Sure. Yeah. Um, I guess the reason I was asking about the skull was obviously, again, with my ECC perspective, because when I talk to people about traumatic brain injury, I very much recommend that they never x-ray take radiographs of the skull, because I don't think in that situation, other than you know, mandibular symphysial fractures maybe, but that's a slightly different conversation. But when I'm talking about you know, what injuries might be present that are impacting on the brain parenchyma and so on, um, so in that context, I don't recommend people take skull radiographs, but obviously I have a very narrow focus in terms of the things that I teach and stuff. So my question was broader than that specific population of patient. Um, so it's interesting how you say that, because I guess my memory of skull radiographs in non-emergency patients is just they're a, they're a nightmare to obtain good quality ones. So. Uh, yeah, but, you I, know, think, like, I think that's very true, and, and I guess something to add to that is a referral environment is very different to a, to a primary care environment, and I think that's probably very obvious to most people. Mm. And for, for those polytrauma cases, um, even if the referring vet has taken fantastically good skull radiographs, it's pretty likely that patient's going to end up in a CT scanner. As, as you, you've seen those, um, I think Dr. Lamb had them or something, but someone's shown me some, a spectacular example of Plain, plain skull films that were read as within normal limits or unremarkable, and a CT that has <laughs> shown a spectacular number of fractures. I think <laughs> it, it, it's it's not overstating it that that CT is a completely different animal in terms of accuracy of of, of findings compared to to survey radio, radiology. Right, let's put the animal on hold for three more minutes and do your um, do your last point, and then we'll sure. move on and talk about the advanced imaging stuff. Okay, so this is something that I've um, I've encountered with students over the years um, and general practitioners, and I've never really understood why people do it. Um, and my my number ten top tip is is radiological rather than radiographic, and and it's this: when describing a radiograph, describe the things that are obvious to you first. That means you won't be constantly distracted by them when you're describing the rest of the radiograph. So what does that mean? Well, what it means is if you take a thoracic radiograph and your dog has a dirty, great big lung mass, <laughs> spend time looking at the lung mass first because that's the thing that your eye and therefore your brain is drawn to. Some people try to interpret radiographs. I'm not saying this is the wrong thing to do. I'm just saying that this is, I mean, this is an opinionated top ten tips. So, uh, <laughs> so this is my opinion. Some people will, will see that sort of thoracic radiograph with a great big lung mass, and they'll insist on describing the small osteophyte on the caudal aspect of the humeral head, or the spondylosis deformans in the thoracic spine, or the mineralization of the uh, costal cartilages, all of which is very interesting. But your eye and your brain is screaming at you, look at that great big lung mass. Look at the great big lung mass. So, listen to your brain. Describe the great big lung mass. And as soon as you've done that, your brain will then start to ignore it. And then it will start to look at the other things in the radiograph. So that's very interesting because the traditional teaching has been start from the outside and work inwards, right? Like that's, I think that's, that's, that's what I was taught. And I, I must admit, I, again, <laughs> I, don't, I, I do what you've just said, but I do it because... Um, Usually if I'm doing imaging on an emergency patient and I'm not just doing a fishing expedition, I'm expecting to find something significant. Sure. And so, you know, like I'm kind of, that's where I'm going to look at first. And then I remind myself to make sure I've looked at the rest of the film 
so that I haven't missed anything else. So I guess I do what you are suggesting, and you know, at some point it's just what I started to do. But um, I do remember being taught, you know, start from the outside and work concentrically, whatever the word is, into the centre, right? And so, like, I think that's probably why yeah, some that, people... This is nothing new, and I certainly don't want to, to gift-wrap this as my own idea, clearly... Who has an original idea these days? But um, actually, we mentioned him already. But Professor Lamb, who is professor of radiology at the Royal Veterinary College, I called him Doctor. Um, right, sorry. Is, uh, <laughs> he um, might hear this. It's fine. <laughs> he has. He's published a couple of articles, um, which I'm sure are widely available. I forget exactly where they're published. Um, but he's published one called "How to Take Radiographs and How to Interpret Radiographs," and they're very, very practical. And they're written from a perspective of uh, final year students and the common pitfalls and errors that they make. And I would certainly recommend that if you have access to them, um, you should have a little look. They're really, really good. All right, awesome. Um, We're going to move on. And what I will do is I will... um, I don't normally do that, but I will include your top ten tips in the show notes for the episode because obviously we've been talking for a while and people may be kind of struggling to remember them just as a list of points. So I'll put that on the, um, with your blessing, obviously. Sure. Put that on the website and so that they can get that um, later on. Um, so let's move on and talk about CT and MRI. And, you know, you've already alluded to this, that a lot of the people listening to this who are either students or people in practice will not actually have access to these imaging modalities. But I think on the flip side, it's also my perception that their availability, at least in the developed world, which is a horrible word, but you know what I mean, um, that their availability is increasing. So I guess the first question is, do you think it's true that they're becoming increasingly available? 100%. Yeah. I think (laughs) the the growth of CT and MR in veterinary veterinary practice is is astounding um, to the extent that I think we we are struggling to keep up with it. And um, I guess the other thing is there's sort of two two setups, right? There's the kind of we have fixed machines in our building, and there's the we get a truck that comes along once a week or whatever kind of model. Do you have experiences with visiting scanners or not really? Well, yeah, I mean. Uh, well, there's lots, of, there's lots of things to say about this, and it's a massive area, really, when we talk about uh, advanced imaging. But um, there's not only different types of uh, CT scanner and MRI scanner, and that, that is quite important. But as you say, there's, there's a different uh, methodology in, in how these modalities are provided to clinicians. And it might be that you work in a practice where uh, a, a truck pulls up in the car park once a week or once a month um, and uh, a radiographer will obtain some CT or some MR images for your patient. Um, and then those images are examined in, in some way. And that's also uh, mm-hmm. something which is increasing and, and perhaps a little bit controversial. And then the other, the other idea, of course, is that um, you may have a CT or an MRI scanner. You may be fortunate enough to have a CT or MRI scanner actually in your practice that, that is available for use 24 hours a day. There is another subset, which I think is probably getting a little bit less common now, but certainly when all this was starting up uh, was very common, and that was very occasionally veterinary, practice, veterinary practices would be allowed to use human 
facilities, so hospital facilities, uh, to image their patients perhaps at night or in the late evening when, uh, when the scanners were uh, less used by, by their human patients. But I think that's probably becoming less common now. Fair enough. Um, and something that we've sort of touched on earlier and we said we'd talk about it later is, because um, I guess having access to these modalities is one thing, but having the necessary skill set to actually, A, get good images that we've spent a lot of time talking about in the context of um, sort of plain survey-type radiography. And I know you made the point there that in some of the kind of visiting models there may be radiographers that will get you those good images. But then also having the ability to actually interpret those images are quite different. So having access to the modality, getting good images and being able to interpret them are not all, clearly not all the same thing. And what is your sense of how much effort people, and again, I know you've already said this is a little bit controversial, I'm not really trying to be, but I, I think it's an important point to make that people that are getting increasing access to, this, to these modalities is it your sense that they're, they're also putting in the time to improve their expertise and their skill set to be able to actually um, interpret those images? How well or what is the availability of training? And also, you've kind of mentioned it already or we've sort of touched on it because you also, I guess, allude a little bit to the sort of service that we offer here where people can send us images to be interpreted, but you've also got Taylor Radiology. So if you could talk around those two or three questions a little bit, that would wow, be great. Wow, so that's quite, that's quite a lot to... to you don't get too long and you don't get to be too controversial. But, you know. <laughs> that's quite a lot to talk about. So uh, let's try and break that down a little bit. Um, we as practitioners have uh, a much greater access to advanced imaging. By advanced imaging, I mean CT and MRI. Um, we have much greater access to that than, than ever we have before. And I think that's great. It's fantastic. Well, it's great as a profession that we, we've embraced this and that we've, we've moved on and modernized ourselves uh, so that we have access to, to such great modalities. But, of course, with great power comes great responsibility. So, um, so there are a lot of problems with it. So the first problem that we have is... Um, knowing which of these modalities is most useful for the presenting signs of your patient. And I think it's probably a little bit beyond the remit of this podcast to discuss that in any great detail. Um, but I certainly do think that we regularly see cases that have had CT and should have had an MRI scan and vice versa. And often that's because there's no access to one of these advanced imaging modalities and Often that's because the clinician simply doesn't know which would be the best one to use, so has just used the one that's most obvious. So that's the first thing to say. The second thing to say is just because these imaging modalities are advanced, don't think in any way that you can just bung the patient in and hope for the best. It's just as critical that the patients are positioned properly, that the technique that we use is very carefully thought through, um, and that a very competent person is actually obtaining these images. Um, and we do have now uh, dedicated veterinary radiographers. In America, we call them technicians, uh, who obtain these images for us. Um, and often, uh, we also have um, radiographers who are human-trained uh, who will come and um, 
position patients for us and obtain images. Um, uh, just a, a little word of warning about that. I mean, very clearly there are lots of what, what I'll call human radiographers, if you like, uh, who are very, very good at, at uh, obtaining images of our veterinary patients. But I think it's also very important to remember that a dog is not a small person. Um, and therefore, the imaging technique that we use, it has to be different to how we do it in people. Um, and that I'm referring to the positioning of our patients, the exposure factors that we're using for CT, um, the repetition time and, and, um, and echo time that we use in the MRI, um, and even things like um, uh, the use of contrast agents, etc. We need to think about this very carefully. So that's the second, that's the second point, how we actually obtain these images. It's not, it probably shouldn't be a case of We've just bought a new CT scanner. Let's start bunging patients in and see what we get. I think it's very important that people that are using these advanced techniques know what they're doing, know how to use them. I used to work with um, uh, a very, very good um, MR radiographer um, who would refer to the uh, MRI machine as the most dangerous part of the hospital and he's, to a large extent, he's, he's absolutely right. Uh, and this is probably more pertinent to, to us as vets than it is to, to our human doctor counterparts. MRI scanner involves an enormously powerful magnet, and enormously powerful magnets we don't encounter on a daily basis. And so if we walk into an enormously powerful magnet without having got, undergone the thorough checks that are required. And certainly if we walk into a magnet with a scalpel or, an, or a needle in our hand or uh, metalwork in our, in our eyes or in our, in our bodies somewhere, it can be extremely dangerous. Well, actually, so, that made me think something. Does the RCVS stipulate any extra sets of criteria or anything that mean that if you are going to buy an MRI machine, you have to, I don't know, demonstrate something or take some sort of test or do something other than, or can any vet just decide if they've got the space and they've got the money, they're going to have an MRI machine? I'm not sure what the answer to that is. Okay. Um, I, I know that there's very good and commonly used best practice. Uh, I'm unsure uh, that the, um, the litigation um, behind it. Mm. Um, certainly for CT, well CT emits ionising radiation and therefore is governed by the same ionising radiation regulations as we use for, um, for X-ray. Um, but MRI uh, is a different kettle of fish. Um, so I guess my answer to that would be you'd probably need to refer to your country's regulations <laughs> yeah, for their right. use. And, um, and, and what, about, what about the training? Do you think? Actually one other thing I want to ask you that sort of relates to that is because I guess it's true to say that um, diagnostic imaging specialists have also had to, you know, older ones that maybe did their board certifications and so on at a time when CT and MRI weren't yet in use. I guess they've had to go through quite, quite extensive self-training as well, right? And I think you were of a generation where you learnt about these modalities and had access to them during your residency, am I right? Yeah, sure. Yes. I mean, I did my residency fairly late Not on. that long ago, right? Um, <laughs> so, uh, so I had access to these things during my residency. But the point that you raise is, is very pertinent. Um, I think that 
if you think that you're a very good radiologist in terms of your ability to interpret survey radiographs, doesn't make you a good CT radiologist or MRI radiologist. These things are so far away from our normal daily consciousness as general practitioners that I think it's very unreasonable to presume that you will be very good at interpreting these images without any sort of training. And perhaps it's a little bit controversial, but this is also something that, that I think is pertinent. The training is the training that, that, that specialists undergo in order to interpret these images is extraordinarily rigorous. Uh, and here at the RVC, we have residents who are, uh, we, we, we push them very hard to ensure that, that when they go out and into practice, that they're very good at what they do, uh, not only from a safety perspective, but from a diagnostic perspective, so that they're making the right diagnoses. Um, so it has been said, and I'm not fully sure how I feel about this, but it has been said that you shouldn't be interpreting these images unless you're an imaging specialist. I think that's probably quite a far-reaching statement, but I can also understand, uh, having been through uh, the RCVS certificate program and also the European diploma and, and um, uh, describing myself as a European and RCVS specialist, I can see the dramatic difference that residents have to go through in order to get the basic level of training in these advanced imaging modalities. So, I mean, I guess to ask you this question, because I, I you know, say I'm quite honest on these podcasts, and I do worry a little bit that people are getting access to these modalities but don't have the expertise. I'm generalising again out of necessity, but you know, it does worry me whether they actually have the expertise to both know when they should be using them, not using them just for the sake of using them, and we'll talk about that very quickly, and, you know, being able to actually interpret the images that they obtain and that, you know, because again, I don't, I don't, we, none of us like the idea of pets having stuff done to them and pet carers paying for things that aren't necessarily as useful, rewarding, value for money or whatever what you want to call it as they could be, right? So I guess as a non-imaging specialist person, I just sort of from the outside viewing in, I kind of, that, that does just worry me a little bit, like. Sure, but you know. let, let's not overstate this. Um, I think the fact that we have access, we regularly have access to these advanced imaging modalities is fantastic. It really is. And it is revolutionising the way that we think about diseases um, and the way that we categorise diseases in a way that was unheard of as little as a decade ago. In fact, less than that. Uh, and as little time as since I've finished my residency. It's really, really, uh, really fantastic. I don't think it's something that we should be scared of. Uh, and I don't think general practitioners should be uh, worried about um, taking these cases for advanced imaging, provided they have a good understanding of what it is that they're looking for, the appropriate imaging technique, and that they have access to or are able to both perform the imaging study themselves to a very high standard and also interpret the images to a, to a very high standard. Cool. Um, um, and that kind of, you, you could argue then, uh, what, I, what I don't want to say is that there should be a, a, an imaging specialist in every single practice in the land because clearly that's completely un, un, impractical. Um, but 
moving on from that, one of the things that has really um, rocked the veterinary radiology service or radiology profession, particularly in this country and definitely in the United States, is teleradiology. And we're a bit behind our human counterparts on this, but, we're, but this is gathering momentum. There are a large number now of teleradiology services, both in the UK and in the US, um, and these services offer global um, image reporting. So um, anywhere on the globe, you can, you can uh, send them your images and they'll uh, give you an, uh, um, a reporting service. And the standard of those reports is very variable, but there are a number of, of um, uh, companies, and I'm not here in any way to advertise anything, far from it for that matter. Uh, but there are a number of companies who uh, will only use imaging specialists, uh, people who have shown not only by examination but also by their professional experience that they are very, very good at, in, at the interpretation of a particular imaging modality. And so whilst there's, in, there's an increase in access, and we should, be, we should be grabbing hold of that, I mean, we should be, we should be using these things, um, there's definitely now a way that we can also have those images interpreted mm. for us in perhaps a way that wasn't, wasn't available five to ten years ago. Excellent. And um, just to end then, in <clears throat> one sentence for each modality, <laughs> and it can't be a rambling sentence, um, can you just summarise for us very briefly what CT is and when it might be indicated? And in that response, answer the question whether if resources and cost were of no concern, is it always better to do CT than plain radiography? So what is CT used for? When is it indicated? And is it always better than plain radiography? And likewise, what is MRI, but in very succinct responses? Wow. <laughs> so that, that one sentence... This is like the PS <laughs> postscript to the podcast. So CT. Um, CT is basically a type of X-ray technique that removes superimposition of tissues. So anything that you'd use a radiograph for, CT is really good at. But actually it goes a bit further because we can use contrast studies, we can look at blood vessels, we can look at different types of soft tissue in a way that survey radiography is unable to, uh, to help us. So what do we use CT for? To be honest, we use CT for virtually everything excluding the central nervous system. Um, uh, CT is not as good in its soft tissue uh, contrast resolution as MRI, and I'll come to MRI in a second. Um, so do we use CT in preference to radiography regularly? Yes, definitely. Do we always use CT when radiographs would suffice? Definitely not. Um, and so we may um, look at fractures, for example, simple fractures that have been radiographed and think there's, we, there's absolutely no need to do a CT scan on this because it's going to show us exactly the same thing and it's going to cost our client a lot of money to generate exactly the same diagnosis. But there are some things like, for example, um, uh, looking for pulmonary metastases where CT has been shown beyond all reasonable doubt that it does a much better job than, than radiography. So that's, your, that's the answer to your first part. Uh, if you're thinking about CT, remember your radiography, 
CT uses x-rays, so it stands to reason it does a good job of the things that you would normally think about radiographing. MRI, on the other hand, uses a magnet to generate an image, and it's well beyond the remit of this podcast to describe how that happens. But suffice it to say, it does things in a very, very different way to um, imaging modalities that use x-rays. It is extremely good at looking at different soft tissues, and particularly at looking at soft tissues that are encased in bone or line next to bone. Um, And so it lends itself in our veterinary patients to looking at the central nervous system, and to a certain extent the peripheral nervous system, but definitely the central nervous system. What MRI is virtually hopeless at, or certainly at the moment, is dealing with things that move. Um, And so thoracic MRI is, in my view, not terribly useful, and abdominal MRI, there are better imaging modalities to use. So MRI, I think we, we tend to use it at the moment, and I'm sure this will change, and I'm sure there may well be people jumping up and down listening to this who completely disagree with me, but um, MRI is, uh, is most useful for diagnosing central nervous system disease and periarticular soft tissue injuries. I think that's probably what we would use it mostly for. Not exclusively for, but, but mostly oh, that's for. Okay. We, we just need an overview, which you provided fantastically. Um, I think we're going to stop there. I have no idea how long we've been going for, but it's been really, really good, really interesting, and really comprehensive. And as always, I have learned along the way. Um, <clears throat> before we do, though, was there any burning last-minute call to action or call to arms or any, anything else you feel like you want to get off your chest right here and now? about imaging or do you feel like you've said what you need to that's say? That's a bit tricky, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I've, I've been on both sides of the fence now for, um, for quite some time. By that I mean the, the private practice or, or general practice um, uh, approach and the uh, imaging specialist approach. I think probably um, something that I would add, and, and especially in, in, in the UK, there are differences between certificate holders and general practitioners and certificate holders and residents and residents and specialists, etc. I would suggest that uh, if you're unsure what you're doing, there's always somebody at the end of the phone who can help you. There's always a specialist somewhere in a university teaching hospital, in a private referral hospital. Pick up the phone and ask. If you're worried, ask. And they'll almost always be only too happy to help you. Excellent. Thank you very much, mate. And um, I've really enjoyed our chat today. We've tried not to be be too controversial. Um, And to the listeners, then, as always, do feel free to get in touch and provide your feedback in the usual ways. Um, You can email me, as always, at schasani at rvc.ac.uk. There's an album in the RVC's Facebook page where there's pictures um, relating to the podcast. Or you can tweet at Royal Vet College using the hashtag... S-A-Clin-Pod. And just a reminder again that if you can take a moment to rate or review the podcast, um, I would be really grateful and appreciate that. And uh, until next time, then do take care of yourselves. Bye bye. <laughs>